Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to see you again. This is uh, your host of Digital Grocer, uh, Sylvain Perrier, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Fairhurst. Mark? It's great to see you. Yes, it's going to be a great show. Yeah, it is. So we have a scoop for our listeners. Mm-hmm. And I want to preface this, that this is not hearsay. This is direct knowledge of, of a large bank, as well as a law firm who are directly involved with this project, that both independently reached out to us to have access and have the authorization to publish some of our research. Now, the big positive out of this is two things. One will be the transparency, what's happening behind the curtain. Yep. And two is the fact that our research is making its way into so many different hands, right? So I'm excited about it. So let me kind of give the, the build up to, to this big scoop. Yeah. And this comes on the heel of a interview and a presentation that Fiji Simo did at the end of March that Bloomberg picked up yep. that basically said focus of Instacart right now was not to do an IPO. And but certainly from the end of March to now, we have seen certain things happens in the in the industry that would lead to you know i would say otherwise from their um, marketing activity their mm -hmm. rebrand or refresh from their product positioning which is eerily similar if you don't mind me saying um yeah so all all of the pieces have been put in place absolutely well the announcement of a grocery outlet going nationwide and tackling a grocery outlet would be very difficult because of the way they manage their inventory. Mm -hmm. So that's a big announcement. Uh, certainly the product positioning, which is in line with ours, quite frankly, also in line with DoorDash mm -hmm. and just the overall climate today. Right. Yep. right. And we'll talk about that later in the episode where we are seeing companies like DoorDash, where their stock is down 50%. You have Grubhub that's up for sale, essentially, likely at a loss versus Huge. what it was purchased. It's oh, it's massive. It was like an eight billion dollar purchase, and yeah, no one's yeah, gonna it's, pay that. No one's no, no one's going to pay a premium. And quite quite frankly, the whole that whole segment of ready made slash restaurant food being delivered to home is in is in peril. Um, and and I've we called this out. We've also called out meal kit companies that are, are going to suffer any case. Yes. Yeah. So that's what Fiji said, you know, press market indicates otherwise. So about two weeks ago, Mark and I are on the road. We're actually, uh, we were out in Chicago. We were doing the work with David Bishop, visiting some stores at Amazon, and we were kind of touring a bunch of other retailers on our way through, uh, coming back to Toronto. Um, which I'm excited to say at some point, we're going to be recording more episodes on the road towards the end yeah. of May. Yep. So Mark gets a phone call from this large bank with a direct request. Are you okay if we use some of your data 
to publish in a filing that we're doing. And so Mark kind of brushed it off, right, Mark? You just you say it's well, publicly we, available. Yeah, yeah. We, we get inundated with um, sell-side requests all the time you know, to, to use our research. And um, it those reports that are publicly accessible, yes. I mean, I, I, I appreciate the courtesy of asking our permission. Um, but, I, you know, at the, at the same time, they're also doing a lot of probing as to what goes into that research. Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. Sure they do. And I, I think at the end of the day, people have to realize we, we don't do this research just to support our sales efforts. It's fundamentally about educating the industry Correct. And that could be a prospect, an existing client. It could be an analyst. It doesn't matter. And that research we know is consumed worldwide. So Correct. we know who's who's reading it, who's doing what with it. The So that kind of threw a bit of a red flag. Mm-hmm. And last week, a prominent law firm with uh, a series of partners and associates reached out to us on a, and requested a phone call to request permission to publish our numbers as part of an SEC filing. Correct. And so we got on a call and, <laughs> which is which is I'm just kind of thinking how do how do I phrase this because it's odd to to receive a request to publish data in an SEC filing. So well, okay, okay, what there's a lot of data points. What exactly do you want to publish? Right, exactly. And and so we got on the phone yeah. with the law firm, and the law firm specifically um, kind of pointed out what they wanted to publish, which was the cake. Kigger with the, you know, the number, you know, the forecast, think, the market forecast, right? Yep. Yep. And, you know, Mark asked a question. You said in your email, this is for an SEC filing. Do you mind sharing for who? Mm-hmm. And came right out. Yep, it is blank. for Instacart's yep. IPO filing. Yep. And so they are in the phase of prepping their filing. Yep. And so, our response was, hey, listen, maybe you don't know this, but we're competitors to a certain extent. And I think it'd be kind of awkward for them to have an SEC filing with their competitor quoted, especially their research. Right. We'll leave that up to you. It's your decision. This information is publicly available. And that's kind of we ended the call. Yeah. Yeah. But it also it, it also confirmed it basically was the last dot you know in a series of dots yeah and we're good at connecting those it's uh, <laughs> right so it's and you know good for them i know they've you know, obviously you know had to slash the valuation you know and and it makes sense you know they're trying to right size themselves for this filing but you're right what we're all really going to be interested in seeing is what's behind the curtain when filing does get published because at that point yeah. you know i'm sure there will be some crafty marketing pr gymnastics going on in that document but it'll be a you can rest assured we'll do another show uh, in a deep dive of trying to decipher exactly where that business is going and how it's growing uh, on on the backs of um, our clients or grocery retailers yeah and what i get concerned at the end of the day, quite frankly, is how are retailers winning in this space? Mm-hmm.
more than anything. And Mark, you, you could talk about this, but our latest research that we've seen is a strong indication that sales online for a certain basket size are down and in grocery, but up in mass. Yes. Yeah. There's, so the March numbers, uh, the April numbers will be coming out in, a, in about a week or so. The March 22 numbers, U.S. grocery market online sales totaled about $8.7 billion. Uh, which was down about 6% versus March a year ago. Still, in context, as uh, Brickmeets Click Research has shown from August 2019, it's still 4x what it was pre-COVID. So patterns are still highly oriented towards online uh, month over month. But again, it, mass merchants are taking a, a bigger share. And what we also saw was that delivery a larger share than they historically have been over the last two years. And we think that's primarily because of the incentives among the large delivery providers trying to get market share, uh, but but also the flood of quick commerce providers in those large urban centers who are also discounting to win over consumers. Yeah, this this is where it becomes very interesting in a sense that those sub 30 minutes delivery companies are flooding the market with offers. You have the new, I don't want to call it the entrance, but the people that just want to test this and see what it's like. But then I start to worry about fundamentally, what does it mean for a retailer or for a company? What kind of consumer are you attracting? I mean, it's cherry pickers, cherry pickers amongst uh, the delivery providers. Yeah. So I've heard stories that some 15 minute delivery companies are attracting very low margin basket, small number of items, and at the worst hours possible for, for delivery, like late evening, late night. Yep. And that can't be attractive if you're a retailer trying to, you know, to compete against, you know, these small organizations, but more so if you fall into that pit of wanting to service in that same type of fashion in under 30 minutes, I mean, this is this is where we hear this, you know, in the last three weeks from a, a series of super regional, almost semi-national retailers, they are concerned that this is a, a race to the bottom. And, and my feedback to, to these retailers that are on the fence when it comes to e-commerce, because don't get me wrong, we are seeing to a certain extent still retailers that have not made investment in e-commerce. Correct. Yep. And And I think what I want to say is, First of all, if you decide not to do e-commerce, it is tantamount to maybe giving a few of your stores brick and mortar away to Walmart. Yep. Or or your closest, largest national chain that you compete with. So that could be Kroger, it could be Publix, it could be someone else. It doesn't, doesn't really matter at this point. I'll hold Del Hayes. So don't think that consumers don't want to shop online and they're so enamored with your brand and they love it so much that they're going to come in. Convenience is still the dominant factor driving consumers to buy online. Correct. Where the industry is falling short, in my opinion, is we get it. You have a pricing strategy inside your store, but what we're educating the market is you need to start thinking differently against how you sell your price your products online 
since convenience is the first factor. So if convenience is the first factor, anyone that's really well educated in loyalty yep. would say, oh, great, you're not selling a product online. You're actually offering a service that wraps a product. Exactly. So me meaning is you can drive your pricing online, not terribly higher, independent of inflation, quite frankly, where you can recoup some of the investments you're making in. And what I fear right now is this quasi idea of racing to the bottom is going to be a self fulfilling prophecy for two reasons. One is you're seeing in these massive investments in these rapid delivery firms, which quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned is BS simply mm. because the average family and consumer doesn't need a full cart in 15 minutes. Yeah, there is that occasion where you may need a bag of chips because you've had too many beers watching Sunday football. <laughs> I get it. But to, to the debt, to the cost of what? Right. Right. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Last night, my wife and I order, ordered sushi, which is not, you know, it's not grocery, but the, the upcharges and the fees were insane. If you, and then you factor in inflation as well. So how is this sustainable rapid delivery 15 minutes for a small product? So I, I get I get concerned in that that is a tranche of the market that's going to scare retailers. Retailers will fall into that pit of wanting to do the same thing, not understanding that the basket and the type of consumer that they're going to approach is going to erode margin for them. Yep. So it's even, even greater concern. And so that profit, prophecy becomes self-fulfilling. And there's another factor on top of this is we're coming out of the pandemic. There's less of a concern of the government shutting down our grocery stores. And so we're seeing a flood of shoppers, not a flood of shoppers, but I mean, you quoted the numbers that are kind of coming back into the grocery store. We're seeing that across our client yeah. base, which is the, the basket that's sub $100, which is the in-store basket that migrated online. It's migrated back, back in store. Grocers are going to pause their investments in this space to focus on price control, price inflation. But the big players in the market are not. Correct. And, and, and they, they know that the online channel, online's growing at, at 4 or 5% per year. That's the mm -hmm. projection. Correct. And offline is 0.2? It's point, yes, 0.2. Yeah. So it's considerably hard. So in Canada and in the U.S., we have a company called Wealth Simple, right? Yep. So it's online app-based wealth management, investment, and so on. In our company here at Mercatus, our average age is below 30 years old, right? Mark and I are a part of a team that are the <laughs> old, oldest. We're dragging it in the older direction. <laughs> we're, we're, dragging, we're, we're dragging them to, to, to you know, us being the senior citizens in the business. Yeah. So we have, we have 15 individuals using using wealth simple and this reminds me of the 0809 debacle and the 0809 debacle you had a lot of families in the united states and canada that suddenly overnight were struggling financially and the generation that grew up in that age watched their parents struggle dealing with their banks their traditional banks mm -hmm. and now you see a sudden flux of nouveau fintech companies 
that are coming in with cool, sexy applications and products that are very appealing to the masses. And, and so that generation that watched their parents struggle are kind of being becoming very dismissive of the banks and are kind of jumping in. That's why you've seen the traditional banks really ramp up their digital products and, yep. and yep. how to do social media. So I think we're reliving through that same thing. So through the pandemic, you, you literally had. That's interesting. Yeah. Teenagers and kids who are already extremely adept at social media. And then I'm not talking about Instagram and Facebook. I'm talking about TikTok and, you know, be, you know, following influencers on YouTube, quasi becoming influencers or circling themselves. And they, they are used, you know, they've never had to go into a bookstore to buy a book. They've never had to go into a record store to buy a record. And guess what? In this pandemic, they rarely had to go to a convenience or grocery store to buy groceries. Correct. Correct. So if you're a retailer and if you're not keeping up, congratulations. You just let the, the next generation of customers that should be coming to your store that aren't going to care. Their house is less than five miles from your store. You're li- literally letting them go to the best online retailer. Right. And that, and so, that, best, and that best online retailer increasingly are the, the mass merchants. Because they are investing. When it comes to technology, okay, let's take away the operational component, operationalizing certain things. But there are easy wins that you can do from a tech perspective that aren't going to break the bank. A good integration. Yep. A good user interface. Great support. Like there are, there are competing on price is passe. It's important because there's a segment of the population that values price. That's why we have EDLP retailers. My EDLP retailer, not Walmart, because I don't shop at Walmart, has in my neighborhood better quality produce than Longo's, than Farm Boy. And that's that's a tall that's order. A, yeah, and for those of you who don't know, Longo's and, and uh, Farm Boy are... Uh higher end niche uh, focused on on produce and and uh, quality assortment uh, overall and mm-hmm. and that's something if you're EDLP and I think I know who it is uh, is is getting better uh, fresh uh, than they are that's 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 a that's a statement in itself yeah and and, and again price is important but quality friendliness of service yeah. a clean store when it comes for me and when it comes to an online experience is tell me what you substituted in advance before you show up. Yeah. Don't tell me, don't tell me when you did it at the door. Cause I'm at this point, I just, just give me my stuff and leave. Like yeah. you're not going to be able to fix the problem at this point. So there are little things that you can do as a retailer to kind of keep that consumer happy and engage with you and focus, but not investing is just, just not an option. I agree. hundred percent. I'm interested to see what's going to happen in the next six to eight months with uh, inflation uh, creeping up. We're going to see the lending interest rate at the Bank of Canada is saying it's going to be into a neutral position, right? So Mm -hmm. a neutral position, not to the point where it calms the the inflationary waters, but at the same time doesn't stifle. Doesn't uh, slam the brakes. Doesn't slam slam the brakes. 
yeah. on the growth of uh, growth of, of our GDP. So neutral for us here in Canada will likely be around three three point five percent. I think at this point that's what we're we're calling. Not sure um, what that is in the U.S. The the one thing that I think will have an impeding effect on this industry and on the rising price of food is the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I, I think people don't understand that Ukraine has always been considered, and this is a bit of the fuel uh, to a certain extent why, why uh, Russia is invading. Besides this concept of just expanding the empire and a throwback to a throwback to the anything prior to the '80s, quite frankly, is the fact that um, 400 million households depend on what is called the breadbasket of Ukraine, so grain, wheat that comes out of the country. And right now, no one is sowing any crops. So at some point, you're going to see um, that affect food prices across Europe. And you're already seeing right now the EU, France specifically, because they are having presidential elections, trying to create an environment where France is less food dependent on the rest of the EU. And this is also a strategy, along with energy that's being discussed in other EU countries, which is going to have a ripple effect in, into the North America, uh, quite, and, quite frankly. And because we, we pay world prices and then mm. price in US dollars, we all pay whether whether, um, you know, the product comes from Know, Alberta or or Ukraine, mm. it's all priced at, at at a global value. Well, we can, Canadian wheat farmers sell their grain on the open market, and and so obviously, you know, the tone will be set, and tone mm-hmm. will be set for the rest of the food that's prepared here. And it it's unfortunate. No, it's, it's unfortunate the war. It's also unfortunate when it started. And I think part of it when it was started was to cause this this ripple effect on terms. Uh, the saving grace will be energy will be a little bit less painful because summer's coming into Europe, but it'll be now we're going to feel it into price of food, and God God help us if this drags on into the you know, next series of winter months because again, the the barrel of oil will become more expensive and that will translate yeah. into everything else that we see. Yeah. So I'm excited for this episode and our scoop. And uh, as always, it's been great to chatting with everyone uh, today. And we will be back with some more exciting content. Uh, Absolutely. And probably when we're going to be on the road. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. Um, the adventures of uh, Thelma and Louis. I'm sorry, Sylvan and Mark. Or Twister. Um, what was it, Joe? His name, <laughs> Joe and Bill Paxton. I can't remember, uh, and what was Bill Paxton's name? Uh, the character. I, I, we'll find it. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I can I can only remember his name was the extreme because he went up to a twister with that bottle of Jack Daniels. That's and... right. <laughs> That's great. We'll have to rent a Red Dodge. So for very well. Okay. Awesome. All right, thanks, folks. We've got more great episodes on digitalgrocer.com. Connect with you on social media at Digital Grocer on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and at Digital underscore Grocer on Twitter. Like, subscribe, and click that bell icon so you never miss another Digital Grocer podcast. Your beard grew back incredibly fast. It did. Yeah. It actually, I tracked it. It was about 35 days. It's like a, it's like a chia pet. It's, it's, except without the green paste <laughs> on my face and stuff like that.